welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of energy. And for those who enjoy a nice cold beverage while watching the sunset or simply drinking coffee on the way to work, Technip FMC is giving away a Yeti tumbler to one lucky winner. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information for a chance to win. Welcome back to another episode. I'm here at the Houston Cannon with Brian Smith, Gulf Coast Business Development Manager at QI2 Elements. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Justin. Thanks for having me. You betcha. It's funny because we were, you know, you came early, ultra prepared. I like that. Most people come right at the time we hit record, which is also fine. But you found me and I was working away and we started talking. I admire a lot of times, sometimes you see these, I guess, influencers or people that like always have a camera around them. And I always think like, you know, say a couple of years ago, I would say, well, that's just like, that's... It's kind of neurotic, right? Like, or not neurotic. It's like, hey, look at me, look at me. But what I've come to realize is there's so many good conversations that if all of them could be captured, they could be put online for the rest of the world to hear, which is partly why I do podcasting. But we started talking about energy and, you know, supply and demand and whether oil is going to 200 or 50, which we're going to talk about. But I, you know, it sucks because then I was like, well, no, Brian, like, stop. We need to stop because we need to record this so that people can hear the conversation. So I say that to say, I'm excited for today. Thanks for coming in. I'm glad we can make this happen in person because I think you emailed me and you were like, hey, let's do this in person because I think we're going to do it over Zoom. But for the listeners out there, it's fascinating because again, just to the power of LinkedIn, Brian had reached out and he gave a very, and I'm humbled, you know, thank you so much. He said, hey, I've listened to your podcast and they're great. Here's some interesting conversation that I think we could have, you know, if you were to have me on the podcast. And I appreciate that. And I say that to say a lot of times people will reach out and I always welcome people connecting with me on LinkedIn, but just the way you did it was very respectful. And so I appreciate that, Brian. Absolutely. That's, I try to be open. I try to be honest. I try to be myself. And, and like I said, thanks again for having me. I was, yeah. Like I said, I think you have a lot of great topics and I'd love to contribute to the conversation. Well, I'd like to say that I create the topics, but it's actually the guests. I'm just the the conduit of uh, information to put it out online. Because yeah, I mean, really a lot of the topics come from people's experiences because everyone has such a fascinating story. And it's funny because a lot of times I'll look at people, you know, whether it be online or just people that I've come across, I'm like, hey, would you want to come on my podcast? And most people say, ah. Well, some people, there's a lot of people that say, nah, I don't, I don't know. Like, why would you want to have me on the podcast? I said, man, you have a great story. Like you have, everyone has an interesting story, whether you come from Ohio or whether you come from, I don't know, San Francisco. I mean, everyone has a unique story and, and everyone has a little bit of relatability. So, you know, it's again, I appreciate you coming on the show. And last night, you know, we we're talking about, you know, meeting here at the can and you said you live close by. Is that like, so do you live in the energy corridor then? Or? I do. I okay. do. I live yeah, about five minutes from the energy corridor and five minutes from uh, Memorial City Mall. It's a great area. I've yeah. grown, up, grown up here my entire life. And well, that's what I was going to ask you. Are you from this area then? Or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So oh, wow. I was born and raised in Houston, been okay. around oil and gas my entire life. My dad did 38 years at Shell. Wow. And yeah, as an IT project manager, so... I've kind of seen how oil and gas has evolved over, you know, the kind of time with my dad. Okay. And just, and so, yeah, I went from there, I went to Baylor University, double majored in supply chain and marketing. And I I had a a girlfriend at the time who's my wife now, and uh, we did a long distance during that entire time, Mm -hmm. posed my senior year. Proposed before I had a job, so probably not the best. Well, no, I actually think that's super admirable because a big shout out to your wife. She obviously was betting on the jockey there and she knew you were going to you <laughs> know, like- amount to something amazing. And here you are. So yeah, she did well. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. <laughs> I know she does as well because she's great and really t- she's a great mom, great wife and just all around great person. So I was- I love it. I was lucky. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. It's interesting. You, you said your dad worked for Shell. You said for how long? 28 years? 38, I believe. Or 38. Okay. So- Growing up being exposed to oil and gas, if you can think back far enough to, as a kid, what was sort of the the lens that you looked through that you saw in oil and gas? Was it an industry that you just thought was the best thing since 
you know, pants with pockets or was it kind of like, oh, it's just dad going to the office again? I mean, because I grew up in an entrepreneurial family and we had a little furniture store and a kitchen and cabinetry shop. So I really didn't get exposed to oil and gas until I was, you know, past high school. But uh, tell us about, you know, again, young Brian growing up in, uh, you know, in the oil and gas family. Absolutely. So what was interesting is my dad actually would be very kind of open with me about the industry. Like I remember Shell would have bring your kid to work day. So he would bring me to Shell's IT building. I, I think it was in the Galleria area. And, and I just remember as a kid, you know, they, they came in there and they would they would have all these little projects for you. Like one of them was, here's an egg, you know, we're going to drop it from, you know, an elevated, you know, area, build something so it doesn't crack. I remember things like that. And just the end of the innovation that, you know, just the oil and gas really has is something that I, I really admired. And my dad, incredibly innovative individual and just all around good, good guy, great dad. And similar to you, like my mom was also an entrepreneur and she had, Ah. we have a family business as well. So I I really saw both the kind of corporate side of Shell and kind of similar to you, the the small entrepreneurial, Ah. you know, side from my mom. So I, I really had kind of a blend of both. And that I think is incredibly necessary in the oil and gas to have both that kind of pick yourself up by your bootstraps mentality of the entrepreneurial, you know, go get them, but also, you know, how do corporations function? How do they make decisions? Why do they make decisions? And I, I think being exposed to that at a young age really kind of helped prepare me for the future. Yeah. And that actually is, and you're extremely fortunate to have both sides, right? Because a lot of times it's either one or the other. So what would you say growing up? Is there anything that really stands out, whether it was something your father told you or something you got exposed to? Obviously the egg falling and well, let me ask you, did you were you successful at not making the egg crack? We built a, it was almost like a cage around the egg and paper mache it and dropped it from like 20 feet, I think, or something like that. And unfortunately, I, I guess the, the tape and the straws didn't hold up. So, uh-huh. so we, we unwrapped it all and, you know, there's, you know, it was kind of, the yoke was coming out. So we're like, okay. Oh, well, fail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But I'm sure, I mean, the effort was there. And how old were you? I was eight, maybe. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Ah, I get it. I wonder, could you have put like, so they wanted you to build something around the egg or could you have put cushions at the bottom? Because my mind automatically goes to cushion. Like you see stuntmen jumping off these buildings and they land on these big pillows, right? Like that's in my mind what I would have done. I think they gave us, they like put a bunch of materials on the table and they're like, have at it. Oh, okay. Hey, this is the goal. We're going to drop it. <laughs> you come up with the design so that, you know, the egg doesn't break. <laughs> okay. Was there anyone there that was successful at this mission? I don't think so. I <laughs> I'm, I don't know why, but I'm so hung on this. I want to try it. Like, I feel like uh, that's a great little competition, right? So oh, it's great exercise and it's a great, and it's a great way to get people to think outside the box. Do we do a parachute? Do we, right? Oh, do, parachute. Do we really kind of wrap it as tight as we can? You know, it's, it's kind of my, my daughter watches Coco Melon all the time and they oh, kind yeah. of have something similar to that. You know, <laughs> the old Coco Melon. I know all about it. Yeah. yeah. That, that's like her favorite word. Coco, Coco. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the TV in our living room has had nothing but Thomas the Train, Steve and Maggie, Coco Melons. We're a little bit past that now with the age that our kids are at. What else? Yeah, Wish and Poof, I think is one of them. Anyway, yeah, all sorts of good stuff. I have yet to watch a full baseball, basketball, football game in its entirety in at least six years. So for all the parents out there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But no, that that's really fascinating. And so I guess going back to the question that I was thinking of is, was there a pivotal moment or was there something your father either explained or showed you or that you were witnessed or your mom to kind of set the stage of the direction you wanted to go or sort of something that you recall that, you know, was kind of formative as you were growing up? I think my parents were very supportive and they were, they definitely were like, find your passion. They really preached, find your passion and find, you know, what really your purpose is, find your purpose. And they were incredibly instrumental on that. They were very, and I, I made a lot of mistakes, but they were always very, just all around great people. And they really, and they believed in me. And I think that's something that I I really do cherish the, the older I get. And as I have kids, you know, just you know, just trying to instill that in them with purpose. I I think some of the best advice I actually got, though, was from my father-in-law. And he told me, he was like, Brian, you need to get a skill. But if you want to make a lot of money, learn how to sell. If you can learn how to sell, you will be invaluable. You will be on the revenue side and you will never 
have to worry about a job because you're always going to need someone to produce revenue in an organization. That's huge. There's so many things I want to touch on. The first one, talking about your parents, which, you know, I admire your parents for saying, you know, find your passion, find your purpose. And I'm just going to continue to encourage you to do that. So my question would be then is what was your passion? What is your passion? And has that changed over time? And same with purpose. Sure. I would say that my passion really, it has evolved. I mean, I I think when I initially went to Baylor, I wanted to do entrepreneurship and Baylor had an incredibly good entrepreneurship program. So I I was, you know, that was kind of what I was doing my freshman year. And, and, you know, I, I came back and I think I talking about my father-in-law again, it was, I mentioned that to him and he was like, do you have money? And I'm like, oh, broke college kid. He's like, well, don't you need that to be an entrepreneur? I'm like, okay, you, you, you probably have a point there. So I, <laughs> and that's still ultimately kind of a passion for me. And, that, and I love the energy of that. And I think at the, eventually that might be an avenue I want to go. But I think a passion that I have right now is really, and I really developed this a couple of years ago, is really kind of a passion for startups. I really, I really love the startup mentality. Why is that? There's an energy to the startup mentality that you really don't find in many other places when you're doing something that's never been done and just, you know, finding, you know, I mean, primarily on, on the revenue side, how do we get money? How do we sell? How do we, how do we get our, our product noticed? And I I would say that that's definitely, and, and I, and also, there's a hustle to it. There's, mm-hmm. there's a hustle that's infectious. And I think Houston's probably, I've been told this many times, Houston is such an entrepreneurial town. It's very, you know, get up and go. Go improve yourself. Go improve society. And there's just, there's an energy about that that I just, it's infectious. Yeah. It's, you love it. Okay. So with that said, is QI2 now, and we'll talk about this later on, but did, were you with QI2 from sort of inception or did you jump on board after they had kind of gone through the startup stage? So I came on to QI2 July of 2020, kind of in the midst of the the pandemic. QI2 had initially started in 2019. It's it's like it was started right right before, you know, the the world kind of shut down. Arguably the best time, because if you can get through that, you can get through anything. And that's kind of what we actually, (laughs) that's what we found out. It was like the sometimes the worst times imaginable bring out the best in us. Yeah. And that's really kind of what I what I saw with QI2. And I, to be honest, I, I wish I could have joined them sooner because great group of people, great and, and just a, an all around great energy. Mm. And it sounds like you guys have been growing. And well, I, I want to talk about that, but I want to tackle a few things first. Sure. You mentioned you're going to be speaking shortly, right? In June, tell us a little bit about the International Liquid Terminal Association conference and just some of the topics you'll be talking about over there. Sure. It's one of the big conferences for storage tanks. So we have like ILTA, which stands for National Institute of Storage Tank Management, I believe. Okay. And but I, ILTA is a, a big, a big conference where a lot of the players come in currently in Houston. So it's good, good short drive from my house to the George R. Brown. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough for to submit a topic on kind of what the future of automation and kind of app-based technology looks like for storage tank inspection and was uh, very gracious that they accept the mine. So I'll, I'll be doing kind of a, a speech on that, talking about, again, what does the future kind of look like in that environment, kind of where we go and what could be the, the future of storage tank inspection. Fascinating. Well, tell us. So the kind of what I see and kind of generally in the oil and gas industry, I see technology taking a bigger part okay. and kind of and from a kind of broad standpoint of where are we going to go technologically? What is still going to be done from a human side? What is going to be done from, you know, an app based, maybe robotic AI type of mentality? And, and I think a lot of companies are trying to figure out where's a good middle ground to, right. to be so we can kind of be agile in how we go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So on that topic then, do you feel like the adoption rate right now is enough to continue to advance or do you still feel like there's a lot of resistance to adopting a lot of technology and automation and and all that? Where where do you see, or at least in your world, how that plays out? I I think it's a mixture of both, to be honest. I think there are people that are skeptical because they have tried new technologies, new new ways of thinking. And and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's 
some sometimes it's preparation and sometimes it's it was just you know bad luck some sometimes things happen so i think you know from some people there you're always going to have the naysayers but i think generally there there is a if if you can produce they there is a huge amount of reception yes no there is and it and that's one thing too at least you know in my world it's people always talk about how oil and gas is always late to the game. You know, it's a bunch of companies that run off Excel and, you know, it amazes me that, you know, to power or, you know, just to produce energy, which requires us, you know, in our world to drill into, you know, two, three miles into the ground and hit a target the size of, you know, this microphone 20,000 feet away, all dependent on, you know, a lot of people at the rig level, who, you know, I was a roughneck, so I can speak on them, like a bunch of roughnecks running around just trying to earn a paycheck, you know what I mean? And but then you know, all the fascinating engineering that goes into it. And so I think the technology for us that we have is amazing. And but what I see is because we do still operate on legacy systems, a lot of times, like just how much more potential there is for our industry to lower our supply costs and like by supply, I mean energy costs. Right. Right. And, you know, they talk about, you know, the levelized cost of energy for whether it's solar, this and that, you know, on the power side, I still think our costs can continue to be driven down once we truly integrate technology that's out in the world and embrace it and come together. So again, like the whole technology piece and, you know, really where I saw it pick up is in on the digitalization part was you know 2014 16 downturn like that's when i started seeing and then just observing like a lot of people and a lot of companies coming out of the woodworks a lot of startups coming out and saying hey like there's a huge market for digitalization to this day and even the company that i work for there's a and now we've i would say we're literally on the verge of going digital for everything but still handwritten field tickets that you know get and and that's another interesting part i was actually part of a I was a moderator for a panel discussion and it was increasing operational efficiencies in the field through digitalization and leveraging technologies to ultimately reduce day sales outstanding. And without getting to the weeds on that, again, it just emphasizes how much potential we have. But again, so speaking about technology, I do need to take a moment to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, Technip FMC. Their integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the WellPad operations. Technip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full-frack automation. To discover more about the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. So Brian, going back to technology, tell us a little bit about QI2. I mean, it's I took a look. You guys recently got acquired by Baker Hughes. So obviously you were making enough noise for someone to scoop you guys up. What kind of technologies are you guys offering out right now? One of the great things about QI2 and one of the things that I really wanted to come on is our digitalization of kind of app-based technology. So, and that's something that kind of, to mention your point, that's kind of how we see also the industry going as well. We do have a huge amount of opportunity to kind of digitalize the inspection process from A to Z, have kind of, you know, app-based, you know, we were taking pictures and whatnot, going going around, you know, the tanks and whatnot, making sure that, you know, it's up to code, up to standard. And that's, that was really kind of what was kind of some of the driving forces behind uh, Baker taking a look at us, not to mention we, in my opinion, have some of the greatest inspectors and uh, technicians in the field. They're, they're great guys, very, very down to earth, and they know their stuff. So I, I think in, and some of our report technology as well was a, I think something that also a lot of companies love our reports. And I, I think, and that obviously leads to sales, which leads to companies like Baker saying, yeah, y'all are doing, y'all are doing something right. So yeah. No, that makes sense. So for the listeners, give a little context as to, you know, how things were done in the past in your world, how they're done now and where you see the future. I mean, because it's so because I was looking online, you guys do you guys have technology for inspection and what else is it that you guys inspection and for like tanks and pipelines and stuff, right? Is that kind of the core value proposition is doing that, but using technology to improve that? Uh, exactly. Okay. It's, we're a, I, I like to tell people we're a technology company that does inspections. So gotcha. uh, okay. your, your API 653 inspections of tanks, your 570 inspection of piping, your 510 inspections of vessels, 
as well as calibrating your tanks and doing engineering work as well. That's kind of one of the main business propositions that we bring to clients, but we marry technology into that to make it more efficient. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So where do you see the future of that going? Yeah, absolutely. And kind of to touch on your point, and this is actually what I'll be talking about at ILTA, kind of the, the history before, and it's it sounds pretty similar to what you were talking about kind of on on the rigs and, and whatnot. It, it was a paper-based system. Uh, you would have inspectors, you know, great inspectors, but they would be going out, they'd be doing a checklist and whatnot. They'd be, you know, looking at the tank. They'd be, you know, taking pictures on like their, like those digital Polaroids or their, you know, those uh, throwaway cameras and whatnot. So that was probably until, until like maybe the mid 2000s. That's, that's kind of how the inspection process was of the tanks. They'd compile all that information. They'd send it in. You know, you would have uh, tech writers and engineers that would be going over it, putting together a report for your, your tanks or your piping. Mm-hmm. And then they would either mail it or, you know, email it to the, the client. And, you know, then, then the client would, you know, look at the recommended repairs. They would, you know, check at their budget, see, like, do we have enough money to make this repair? Do we have enough, you know, kind of what's bare minimum? And what, what can we do to go above and beyond? So, you know, and, and it, it really kind of depends on the company, which, which companies do more, which companies do less. But at the end of the day, that's kind of how the inspection process was. Going into the future... I really see um, the inspection process being one of about a day. You know, a, a lot of times it would it would take you know weeks or months to get reports out. And and where I really kind of see the, the future is, and even present to some extent, is for you to do the inspection and you press a button. It might have to go through a PE review or something like that, but it pretty much goes directly to the client. Ah, uh, yeah. And so they they get it and they can make uh, decisions much quicker. Right. To, to, you know, say like, because obviously an asset that's not holding any chemicals or, or oil or, or, you know, petrochemicals, it's not making them any money. So yeah. they're, they're trying to get that tank back in service as quickly as possible. Yeah. No. And I think that's one of the big benefits just on a macro level, why sort of, you know, the, the technology and the digitalization is so important is because it gives you access to real time information to make data driven decisions instead of having that lag time. Cause that lag tank time costs money, sometimes a little bit, sometimes a lot. If you make an inspection in, in two weeks, you know, your client's getting the, the report or whatever. Well, within that two weeks, what if something catastrophic happens? Right. And then I also see too, where the benefit and a lot of the value is, is perhaps preventative maintenance, right? Understanding, being able to use whether it's machine learning or just, you know, really compiling a mass amounts of data and doing computations real time to say, hey, with if we operate at these specs in six months, you're going to have a failure. Okay, let's start planning. And then from an HSE perspective, way better ESG preventing, you know, spills, whatever blowouts, whatever, like pipe failures. That's where really the benefit is. And the more we can reduce the amount of spills and and leaks and cracks and pipe and whatever that really just helps us from a you know pr perspective if we can reduce that then we're not in the headlines all the time for like look at this crazy oil spiller look at this pipe that burst and blew you know half of this farm apart you know which you know kind of (laughs) being a little bit over you know kind of exaggerating a little bit, but ultimately that's the way people look at it. So I think it's amazing. I think it's a huge part of, of our industry moving forward. And speaking of industry moving forward, we started talking about it before, but you know, we're at this really interesting stage in energy and, and especially in oil and gas, right? Like here we are humming along after the 2014, 16 downturn, 2018, everyone's making money rigs. There's like a thousand something drilling rigs going on. We're, I don't know, close to a hundred dollars a barrel, but anyway, things were going well. All of a sudden COVID happens, boom, shut down 30, you know, I think April 20th to uh, 2020 oil goes to negative 30. All of a sudden everyone time to move away from oil and gas, never coming back. Well, here we are $110 oil. Everyone's making, you know, stock prices are through the roof, but now it's, you know, where do we go from here? So I'm curious, Brian, where does your crystal ball say with regards to oil prices and, and how we as a, or an industry continue to forge ahead and provide you know, quality energy and affordable and reliable and resilient energy. 
It's a great question, and I, I think I think everyone on Wall Street would, would love to have a crystal ball and where you. They're know, all listening right now. So, and this <laughs> is investment advice. So go. <laughs> what I'm curious about is: Will our level of innovation really be materialized into, I guess, a a way of a way to the future? And what I mean by that is: So I I see kind of oil and gas and uh, renewables. I see them going. Side, side by side for quite a few years. I see them as technology gets better and as we continue to improve our industry, I, I really see that as kind of the future. And that's kind of, I do think that right now our capacity for batteries could get better. And I do think that's something that a lot of people uh, are looking at. I do think oil and gas, the efficiency of what you can generate from one gallon of gasoline is something that it is a challenge to get the same amount of energy out of, you know, wind, solar, geothermal, what whatnot. I, I mean, with the exception of probably nuclear right now, it's sure. it's, it's harder. Right. I, I think we're getting I think we're getting there. I, ju- I just think it, I see it as uh, slow growth right now. I think it's incredibly necessary, though, because and, and kind of throughout my career, I've really tried to make oil and gas cleaner. I mean, one of I started at a company called HMT, which is a, a tank company as well. And one of what we were doing is putting seals on on tanks so that it would limit the amount of emissions. Because I kind of like what you were saying, no one wants a tank to blow up or or a pipe to leak or whatnot. Because not only are you contaminating the environment, yet yeah, you were exactly right. From a PR perspective, yeah, who wants to do business with something like that? So I do yeah. think there's a lot of room, and we are doing this right right now from an oil-gas perspective, trying to make it cleaner. Because no one no one wants, I mean, I, I think, it, and from a bottom line, just from, you know, kind of a profit side, you know, if a tank leaks, there goes all your money. So what's the incentive to letting your asset you know, go, you know, fall off. I, I don't think any anybody wants that. I, I think oil and gas could do a, a better job of, of highlighting that and highlighting that, you know, we actually are forging ahead with new technologies to make the world a better place. And really what I see is I do think, and I think I probably already said this, but technology is growing at a rapid pace and being able to marry that with what we have so we don't have the blackouts that we saw a year ago in February, yeah. where we can generate enough energy and enough electricity or, or what have you to make sure we have enough power. And I think the question is, are we going to continue to do that through oil and gas, you know, natural gas and whatnot, or are we going to shift you know, to the renewables? And I think what you're going to see is that, kind of like I said before, it, they're both going to be going in tandem for a while. That's what I see. Interesting. So- I posted an article from the Wall Street Journal, I think last week, and there's already concern and warnings about rolling blackouts in you know different parts of the country. It just really emphasizes the importance of having an abundant and, and a reliable amount of energy. And this stuff takes so much time. And, you know, I just laugh when it's like, oh, we need to replace fossil fuels now. And, oh, well, wait, now energy prices are high. So open the taps. And, you know, I think, again, whether regardless of which side or or which camp you believe in, ultimately, this stuff takes so much time, right? And I was reading a report by McKinsey that just came out, and they're predicting peak, because it's always like, oh, peak oil, peak oil. Well, that's always been on the supply side. But when you look at it, we produce enough to hopefully meet demand to balance markets. Peak demand, from what I've seen by analysts is like somewhere in in the camp of like three to five years. And so, but I, I have a hard time seeing that if we don't adopt other technologies to be able to meet demand. Cause right now we're consuming, I think we're balanced at like 98 million a day globally. And for us to all of a sudden drop that, like, I think we're going to reach a hundred and say 2 million a day just on liquids, not not even talking about natural gas, to then switch it and go the other way. I don't know. It's just hard for me to fathom, especially with, like you said, even with like battery technology and stuff like that. And then on the natural gas side, you know, there's a lot of plans for LNG capacity to increase. I think we reached a max export or a record export for LNG recently, but that's going to slowly drop off just because we don't have the capacity and then perhaps other parts of the world are going to start capitalizing on resources that they have, you know, the whole geopolitical thing is another topic, but yeah, it's a fascinating topic. And so I'm curious, 
you know, from your side, things like where do you, do you think, let's just talk like say oil prices. Do you think oil prices are going to keep like moving forward on the sort of the bullish side of things? Or do you think we're on the verge of hitting a recession? Cause that's something that's, you know, people are talking about more now is, is that, so where do you see commodity prices go? Because ultimately that's going to drive. And real quick, before you answer the question, normally in this high price environment on the natural gas side, you'll typically switch to coal, but because a lot of those plants have decommissioned and there's like anti-coal, well, then natural gas is going to be the fuel of choice for, for power generation. And if people are only using it and there's less supply, then prices like gas prices here in the U.S. are going to get to a point where people can't afford it. So it's like it, we're in this weird pickle. So I'm curious to kind of hear your thoughts on a bunch of stuff that I just said. <laughs> sure. I think one of the problems, obviously, right now is you you had Russia going going to Ukraine and Russia for their one of their main exports is oil. When they were cut off from pretty much the the I, I should say the Western economy, that sends I mean that sends oil prices through the roof. I looked at some of the reports and I think we were getting like eight to ten percent of our oil from Russia. You cut that off, that already was kind of push you know, we were we were high even before Russia went into Ukraine. So that again push prices up. So you're exactly right. It's, it's all about kind of supply and demand right now. And what they're finding right now is we can't just turn a light switch to get our production back up. It, it takes, you know, about six months or so. And right now, I know a lot of people in West Texas are saying, we don't have the people, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of, because I, I guess, you know, people or some people, should I say, and poor people forget that Two years ago, we had a situation where, you know, people were getting laid off left and right. So I think a lot of people, you know, kind of as they had a realignment and said, you know, do I want to, you know, you know, go through these crazy swings of oil being, you know, 100 plus a barrel or or not? And some of them, you know, younger people are like, no, I don't want to do that. So un- unfortunately, it was a great shift because of such a drastic, you know, where I don't think many people thought that, you know, 2020 would be the way that it was. So it was a it was a huge shock to the system. And I think kind of to go on your point a little bit about whenever there's a shock to the system, the market takes a while to figure out what to do. And, and we've seen that for the past two years. There have been huge shocks to the system, to to the market system. And it really it takes time to really balance out. And I think, you know, kind of you, you brought up also a great point about I, I am all for getting our emissions down because I don't think anyone wants, you know, the planet to increase its, you know, temperature, but to completely shut down an entire industry without having a backup plan to meet demand, that is crazy. That is absolutely crazy. And I do think there are people that haven't thought ahead enough to say you you have to have a reliable source before you completely shut down another source. And I think that's something that we're seeing now because, and it was similar to the, the blackout, you know, a lot of the nuclear and, and other power plants, they were they were decommissioned or they were down for maintenance or whatnot. And so we didn't really have a plan. And that's, and that's similar to kind of what you were saying in the, in the Wall Street Journal about, you know, the rolling blackouts, it's shutting down before having a plan. So I, I see... I see that as being an issue, not that one that we can't overcome. I would just say that we, we need to be very careful as we as we make these investments in, in the future that we can also keep up with demand and not and also another thing about a shock to the market system, when there's a shock to the market system like in COVID, it left a ton of people without work. And so what did they have to do? They had to find new skills for employment and whatnot. And that and that's something that the market does not handle quickly. It takes a lot to kind of, you know, to, you know, for young people, especially to figure out, okay, what do I want to do with my life now that I can't just, you know, make, you know, six figures by driving a truck out in West Texas, which I, in 2019, that was kind of how it was, you know, you could, you know, all you needed was a pulse and a, and a driver's license to make six figures in West Texas pulling, you know, you know, driving equipment or whatnot. But then, you know, when it went to, you know, negative 30 oil, yeah, that was a problem. That was a big problem. So I, I think, but Warren Buffett actually said something a while ago. He said, the United States has a secret sauce. He's like, I don't know what it is, but the United States has a secret sauce. We, we always seem to find a way to a problem. And that's something that is almost baked into America. And when we see a problem, yes, we will struggle, but we seem to come to a, to a good conclusion. 
And that's something that we're kind of figuring out right now with this energy crisis about, you know, yeah, with these huge peaks and valleys, how can we bring stability? And obviously, you know, bringing up supply and balancing it with, you know, other, you know, other types of, you know, technologies to meet that demand. So I, I, I would say, I, and again, you knock on wood, you would, I, I, I hope that within six, you know, six months as we, you know, continue to, you know, hopefully get the, you know, and again, who knows what's going to happen in six months, you know, hopefully Russia will see that, hey, it probably wasn't a great idea to invade Ukraine, but right. who knows? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, again, you bring up a ton of good points and kind of going back, I mean, so being in the oil field service side, you know, personnel and, and just input costs and everything else that remains challenging, but I have, you know, some former customers and people that I've worked with that left either voluntarily or that had gotten laid off who aren't coming back. And so that's another big challenge is personnel, right? Because like between personnel and lack of investment, it makes things real tough. But what I've, what it does is it it, it also accelerates the adoption of technology because back in the day, you know, for us, say as a company or so an oil and gas operator, it's like, okay, what's your personnel per production of barrels? You know what I mean? Like if for every 100,000 barrels we produce, we need X amount of people or whatever that key metric is. But but ultimately that's going down, right? Because now with technology and systems and this and that and the other, you need less people. So so that's part of the solution is let's, because there's not many people out there, let's figure out how to produce the same amount of oil and gas with less people. So that's nice. But then again, too, I'm very pleased with our industry on how we've managed to remain capitally disciplined and not just chasing volume over value for shareholders, because that's what got us in, you know, arguably part of this pickle to begin with when, when oils went in the 2014-16 downturn as we were just producing insane amounts of oil and gas. At that point, we should have been filling up our strategic petroleum reserves, but that's another topic for another day. Could not agree more on that. Yeah, we should have just been dumping as much in there as possibly. But anyway, totally off topic. Kind of tying it back to that, it's I think, and we kind of touched on this before, but the, but the frequency and the intensity of volatility is is shrinking. It's like what 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 happened in eight years now is happening in the midst of two. So I think companies now are realizing that, and it's like, oh yeah, we could add six rigs to the board and ramp up production, but what's the trade off? Well, we're going to spend a ton of capital, and if this thing goes to even sixty bucks, well, then we're in a crappy position, and you know now we have to like ramp up crazy. Oh well, now we got to ramp down crazy, and so I like where we're at on on the discipline side. So I'm very optimistic, maybe partially delusional at times, but I feel like we're going to figure this out. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, but you know everyone's like, oh. I'm worried about, you know, the next generation and my kids coming up in this crazy world. It's going to be okay. Our parents said the same thing when we started watching TV. They were petrified. <laughs> and now look, we're okay. <laughs> exactly. And, and one of the things that I also think that's great about our industry is the amount of training that goes into the younger generation. And I think that's something that I, I just, you know, I get jittery about and I love, and I would say, yeah, one of the best ways that I see is the continued education for the younger generation. And the great thing is, is that, yeah, the, the younger generation is, is very smart. And they and you're exactly right. We will find a way that, you know, I'm not going to say it's going to be all sunshines and rainbows, but but things do tend to balance out. You know, you, you're going to have tough times. I mean, 2020, I was laid off twice in the span of three months when my kid, when my first kid was born. So, yes, I it's. Sometimes it's not easy, but at the same time, you know, having, you know, basically a, a good awareness of self and a, and a good, you know, and, and just have that kind of bootstrap mentality. And, and I think I even I try to tell people this a lot that, that what, what I find with success is, you know, to have um, properly channeled aggression and not being afraid to fail. If you have those two things and can really focus on that and really and find a place in America that has a niche, you will be fine. You'll be fine. And I think about this, and I know you've got kids, I've got kids. So one of the things that we always want to make the world better for them, for what we leave to them. And what I would tell people that robots, to the best of my knowledge, 
and you know, I could be wrong in this, but they will be very laxed with soft skills. So yes, they will be able to do, you know, they'll, they'll be able to pack, you know, a hundred boxes in the span of an hour, but would you buy from a robot? Would you, can a robot really, at least right now, I am not seeing artificial intelligence that has the capacity of a 40 year old man. I see it. I see it right now as maybe, you know, having the capacity of a, you know, five-year-old kid. Now it, it will probably improve, but human beings have have an ability to think outside the box with the proper motivation and and just the proper resources. We can think outside the box and we can get ahead. Right. And, th- and well, that- arguably, some five year olds can too. <laughs> I, I have a two year old. Just kidding. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm two, not. But yeah, I have a two year old, and she and she is always getting. It, it, she amazes me because she she has what I call natural aggression. So she goes after what she wants, and I I love that about her. Yeah, no, that's great. And and talking about you know the soft skills and like you said, if you, you wouldn't buy from a robot. Yeah, it's uh, that that part of it's fast. I mean, I, I'm excited. Like I, I embrace technology. I'm such an early adopter on everything. Like. You show me something new and fancy that's come out, I want to try it or use it or at least get a taste of it. You know what I mean? So, and again, some people are a little bit less on the early adoption stage than I am. But ultimately, I think, like you said, everything's slowly going to come together. But the robotics things and and automation, there's always that argument. Well, it's, and I say always, there's not as much anymore. But for a time, it was saying, you know, that's going to take our jobs, this and that. But ultimately, jobs get, they, they, they just get repositioned. You know, you may not need, like you said, someone in a factory to be able to put a watch together or, you know, put tools together because you're going to have the ability to have that done automated and more efficiently. But then you're still going to need someone on the back end or wherever that case may be. But but again, it's it's interesting conversation. And so from a career perspective, like what what do you love most? And I'm kind of taking a pivot here, but going back to QI2, you know, acquired what excites you the most about your job and then really what gets you up every day to just kind of like what gets the juices flowing? I really love the people that I meet. And the thing about this industry is there's some great people. They're, they're, at, at the end of the day, it's, it really comes down to the people. And that's really what I love most about my job is I get to go out and interact with people and solve problems. At the end of the day, what we do as, as QI2 and, and Baker Hughes now is that we make sure that if companies are audited by FEMSA, we give them a quality report. I would say at the end of the day, I love meeting people. I love coming up with solutions. And I'm also a project manager professional PMP. I love being able to run projects. So so I'm really, to be honest, I'm at my dream job. I'm at, I, hey. I, I get to do all, all three of the things that I love. So I, I mean, it's, and, and that's really what gets my juices flowing and, and coming on, you know, podcasts like this, being able to talk about that and talk about, yeah. you know, just issues of the day and whatnot and being able to, yeah, just, I, I would say that because oil and gas is such a people industry still, yeah, that's really what re- really gets me out of bed in the morning. When you found your passion and you love what you do, that's that's the sweet spot. And so, yeah, I encourage anyone out there to keep, you know, pursuing that. And and ultimately, the North Star has to be, you know, what do what makes you happy? You know, and, and some people, sometimes you got to go through the dirt to get to that point. But ultimately, that needs to be the goal. One last way I like to kind of close out here is ask a, a question, you know, again, on, a little bit on the personal side, but it's always interesting to hear people's responses. Do you have any hidden secrets or anything that not many people know about you? Maybe like it's a cool party trick or any video games that you play in two in the morning when everyone's sleeping? Well, maybe not now, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious, man. I, I love to play Halo with um, with some uh, old college buddies. At at uh, I was actually on a bachelor party back in in February, and that was we stayed up to like three in the morning playing X, yeah. Xbox. And I'm a black belt, so I love I, I love I, yeah. I, I, okay, I, I got a black belt when I was uh, 17. Houston Karate Academy, just down the street there. What? Yeah, that's something that I still love to do, and and and, I'll, and I love to work out. I, I love I love going for runs. There's a park right by my house. I love going for runs there. I, I take my daughter quite a bit, push her in the little stroller. What nice? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that's that's those are what, those are pretty impressive, man. I grew up playing Xbox. <laughs> I can identify. I was talking to a, a lady yesterday at Interflex out of she's in Denver, and she was laughing because she had listened to an episode that I did with Michael Hale from Novo Exploration oh, yeah. or Novo Oil and Gas. And uh, when I asked this question, his thing was playing like gaming, and I don't think it was Call of Duty; it was something else, but. He gets up. So like 
like us, you know, just like parent, you know, he's a father, husband, you know, busy is in his career, you know, would, would think that he doesn't have time for anything else. But that dude gets up, it's either 3.30 or 4 in the morning to get an hour of gaming in every day. Like just super committed. And I was like, dude, that's awesome. And so the lady, her name is Kat. Big shout out to Kat if she's listening. She thought that was so funny because she's like, yeah, like, you know, deep down, I'm a huge gamer. Me and my dad used to game on Atari. And so she was at an age where Atari was a thing. And they would have a scoreboard on the fridge and like her and her dad would play Atari together. And I just thought that was so cool. And then here you are talking about Halo and it's like, Everyone deep down loves video games. Like for you to come out and be like, well, I'm too good for that. No, you're not. Like gaming is so much fun. And I'm like so pumped for my kids to get to like a teenage where like I can throw on the Oculus or have, I don't know, like gloves and whatever, you know, all that like technology stuff to like immerse yourself in a video game. Like how cool, like someone who grew up playing Halo, imagine if you could actually get into this like immersive experience through VR been like run feel a shot like how i cannot wait for that i know it, it, it will be an adrenaline rush like no other. i know our like our dopamine levels are gonna be like just i mean i don't know because like you know like it's like anything right like if you get you drink too much caffeine or you do so much like eventually you're not as sensitive right to to these things so yeah kids are gonna be having to jump out of airplanes with an oculus on to get any bit of rush at one point but anyway yeah that's super cool and then karate so black belt i mean do you still practice martial arts or yes i do i started when i was 12 i got my black belt when i was 17 i believe and, and wow. i just uh, what, what i love about technology and i think this has probably helped me throughout the career is the is the discipline that it, it, oh, it yeah. provides and it and I, I had a lot of energy as a kid, and I needed something to channel that. And, and I and I really found that karate was it was a great way to. It, I mean, you you go for an hour, and you, you know you're you're kickboxing, and you're you know you know kicking, punching, breaking boards, whatnot on the speed bag. It's just it's it's a great way to any any stress you have leaves after that hour, and but also the 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 discipline it has to to mastering forms or or, or weapon training or whatnot. It's just it's it's something that you don't really get many other places in in my opinion so i i've really taken that and i i just you know it's it's something it's one of the many things that i've kind of taken from my childhood just the i, I just love it just uh, i can't get enough of it so i have to ask put yourself in this situation you're in the streets getting mugged what's your go-to karate move oh that's a <laughs> i mean you got to be quick yeah yeah you got you got to be quick i, I mean and, and what we were taught is you know, and, and I, I definitely recommend this. You can replace a lot of things. You can't replace your life. If someone is coming with a with a knife and they're like, "I'm I'm not here to rob you. I'm here to I'm you know, I'm here to yeah, end you. You're you, here you know? to end it." Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, obviously, you got to think fast. I mean, obviously, if it's a if it's a male, you know, go for the groin. Go yeah. for the groin. That's okay. But, I mean, like I said, it's dirty, but again, you're you're in your fight to survive. But like a roundhouse kick to the groin is that? I I, I would I, I would that <laughs> or or a jump front kick maybe. Okay. Or, if we were on video, I would totally get you to try and do one of these moves <laughs> right now because I want to see it so bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I mean, and, but there are there are also. I mean, and the thing the thing about your, you have a lot of nerves in your in your neck. So, okay. so I, I would say that's, that's, and, and if you can, if you've, if you've had enough training where you can pinpoint that, I would definitely say that obviously, and, and a lot, a lot of times, nine times out of 10, if you just show a little bit of aggression towards someone that's attacking you, normally they'll back off. Now, if, you know, now if unfortunately they're on some sort of substance and they just keep going, you, you gotta, you gotta deescalate quickly. So if they have, if they have a weapon, get it, get it away from them. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, and then it comes to, you know, once the weapon's away, you know, subdue them, call 911, you know, right. put, put them, put them in a headlock, put them, you know, go, go around their arms so they can't, so they can't move, tra- trap it in and, you know, subdue them, get, you know, if you're, if someone's around, get them to call 911. So, wow. I mean, that's, that's really, you know, something just dawned on me is like, not enough people know how to protect themselves in that type of situation. And even if you've been trained, like how often do you get put in those real life situations where you have to act off fight or flight and it's not scripted or like, okay, guys, now we're going to start this drill. You know what I mean? Like if you're just walking, thinking about 
what you're making for dinner that night and all of a sudden this happens like i i hope i'm prepared more from like just my physical abilities to protect myself but like like education for instance i think the fundamentals of our education system need to evolve and adapt to the times mainly my biggest pet peeve about the education system is, you know, personal finance. Like no one, te- no one gets taught how to manage their personal cash flows. You can go to get an MBA from Harvard, but they're still not teaching you how to manage your personal finances, which is just cr- abs- completely absurd to me. But you know, self-defense, like every school should, you should be taught how to manage your money and invest it properly and how to protect yourself if uh, you get mugged in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, no, I, I could not agree more. I, I think the, yeah, and, and I always wondered the same thing too. Why, why are we not teaching money? Well, why, why are, why, why, yeah, why are we not teaching? It's a conspiracy. The government <laughs> wants to take it all. Uh, that, that might, there might be I'm joking. I, I, I don't know, but <laughs> I, I, I'm joking too. I, I, I would, yeah, it's, I, I think that self-sufficiency is something that we do need to teach the next generation and being prepared both, yeah, both, you know, physically, spiritually, mentally, Financially, I, I mean, all, all that is something that and, and obviously, you know, you need to do your role as a parent on that, too. I, I do wish there was more focus on that because I, I do agree that, you know, because I, I kind of would look at that. And, you know, if you ever watch any of Dave Ramsey's, you know, poor people, poor people calling in with, you know, $80,000 of credit card debt. And, you know, he's, you know, like, OK, well. What do you do with that? You know, you, you, you know, well, you rice and beans, rice and beans, beans and rice, you know, just. But uh, yeah, no, it's, I, I think it's definitely, I, I mean, and I guess going back to self-sufficiency is, is a, something that I highly recommend that, that we just continue to instill in the next generation that, yeah, it's, no, it's, it's important. And, and I think, you know, the great way to close out is it's all about accountability, take accountability for the parents who are, you know, complaining about millennials. Well, guess what? You're the ones who raised them, period. So anyway, this has been a great conversation, Brian. We went in so many different directions, but I loved all of it. Hopefully the listeners did too. What's the best way to reach out to you or to get to know more about QI2 or if someone has a karate question or a halo question? Because you know people out there listening to that too. Sure. I, I can provide my email. Um, yeah. If, if someone- I'll put, here's what I'll do. I'll put your LinkedIn link in the show notes. And then that I would imagine is probably the best way. And if you want to, I've got your email, I'll put your email in the show notes. That way if people are walking along, their dog, whatever, you know, scroll down, click the link. And I'll put the link to uh, Bigger Hughes QI2. What about the conference? Uh, you want to link that too? Uh, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, that would, that would send be me a link to that. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, again, this has been an absolute pleasure for all the listeners. If you could, if you've listened to this long, this is a good one. We hit an hour. And so if you're still listening, thanks for the support. Continue to uh, like, subscribe. If you see it on LinkedIn, share it with a friend, family member, or your kid if they think they can learn something too. And always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.